One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, you would have been hearing Barry uh, Omani on our news uh, reporting that the overcrowding crisis has hit a dangerous point in two of the city's hospitals with the situation now out of hand. That's according to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation and the union are, are now calling for what they say is a bespoke plan to try to tackle the issue. The, the two hospitals they're referring to is the Cork University Hospital and the Mercy Hospital who are continuing to see record levels of overcrowding. For example, as of 8 o'clock yesterday morning, 132 patients were without a bed across both of those hospitals. 92 patients were on trolleys waiting for a bed in CUH while in the Mercy Hospital the number was 40 and that was a new record because the previous overcrowding record for Cork University Hospital was set just on the 29th of March uh, last when 90 patients were on trolleys and at the Mercy University Hospital the previous record was on January of last year. Uh, in total nationwide there were 613 patients uh, waiting either on a trolley some weren't even lucky enough to have a trolley in some of the hospitals they were sitting on uh, chairs so the Irish Nurses and Midwives uh, uh, organisation their Assistant Director of Industrial Relations for the South uh, Colin Porter he said overcrowding in both major hospitals in Cork has now simply become out of hand with records being broken in both the CUH and the Mercy Hospital yesterday. He said it is really clear now that it warrants a national response from the HSC. Uh, the situation at CUH, he says, is continuing to deteriorate and it's literally deteriorating week on week because when we used to be talking about you know record numbers of people on trolleys and high numbers of people waiting for beds, it was usually around the winter months and especially that period after Christmas in January but it's kind of now becoming a week on week that they're setting a new record. I mean, to think in April we're talking about the numbers of people. I mean, we're not even in the middle of, say, flu season when you expect the numbers who are presenting at hospitals to to go up. So the INMO are saying that their members are now under significant pressure across all of the wards. The bed deficits, they say, that currently exists in CUH is impacting the ability of the nurses to carry out safe care. And that's the safe care that the INMO say that they're trained to provide. And the INMO 
industrial relations officer Liam Conway. He's quoted in the examiner today as saying the conditions at the mercy over the last two weeks has simply proven to be intolerable. He says there are real concerns for nurse safety when it comes to fire safety and infection control due to the levels of the overcrowding at the Mercy. They, you know, say for the exam, the members are calling uh, for what is inside the Mercy, what they're calling it as is dangerous. They speak about patients are being cared for near exit doors and that they're being cared for in areas that are blocking fire safety equipment. And the IMO say, look, this is simply not acceptable. And they're saying something, they're saying stop, it needs to halt and something needs to be done about it. And staying on a hospital issue, Seamus has already been on to us uh, this morning and is wondering, again, it's the story we're running on the news uh, today, the new mask rules. Does that include if somebody's going along to visit their local uh, GP? And this is the news that we're hearing today, that the universal mandatory wearing of masks in hospitals and it says other health care areas by patients, visitors and staff that comes uh, to an end today. This is the advice that has come from the Health Protection Surveillance uh, Centre. So when I hear them say healthcare areas, I'm assuming what they mean there are GP practices, dentists, physiotherapists, uh, etc. So yes, I would say it does include, it's not just hospitals, it does include GP practices and of course the mandatory wearing of masks at all healthcare settings that was introduced as part of the pandemic to stop the spread of uh, COVID-19. Now, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre are saying though, it is a matter for each hospital and each healthcare area to decide how they should apply the practice. So while the mandatory nature is gone, you could turn up to your GP practice today or next week and there may be a sign up saying that you still need to wear masks. So it's going to be each individual hospital and each individual healthcare setting will decide for themselves whether they want people to wear masks or not. But the mandatory nature of it uh, is uh, gone. The Health Protection Surveillance Centre has advised that masks should still be worn, obviously, when people are interacting with patients that have any kind of uh, respiratory symptoms. But it's interesting when I was speaking about the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation who were talking about how dangerous the situation is at the Cork hospitals, they're actually against the decision to remove the mandatory nature of the masks and the General Secretary of the INMO Phil Nihay says it's absolutely the wrong move right now. She says many people will continue to get COVID and other transmissible conditions in hospitals because of uh, overcrowding and uh, she feels that they shouldn't be removing the wearing of masks in hospitals and of course Let's not forget COVID certainly hasn't gone away. Just last week, there was 12 COVID-19 outbreaks in hospitals. There were 16 in nursing home settings and there were seven COVID outbreak uh, in community hospitals and residential institutions. So certainly COVID hasn't uh, gone away. And obviously, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre are saying that children with any kind of respiratory symptoms or who are unwell or of any kind of a high temperature, they're continuing to say that they should stay at home and they should avoid other people. But face masks no longer generally required in hospitals or other healthcare facilities as and from today. Barbara was on uh, listening to me talk about the face masks are no longer generally required in hospitals and other healthcare uh, facilities under new COVID-19 guidance from uh, today. Uh, She says, yes, Patricia, you're right, COVID very much hasn't gone away. My entire household of six people came down with it last week. We were completely 
completely shocked. We thought COVID was behind us. So it is still very much out and about. 0818 103 103. Couple of traffic um, texts coming in to us. Uh, somebody says there's major delays both ways at the viaduct in Cork. It's due to a car on fire, according to one of our listeners. And then the guys from our street fleet have been on to say there's a collision on the N25 in Castle Martyr. Now, the emergency services are on route, but you're asked to take care on approach. That's on the N25 at Castle Martyr. And there's a reports of a spillage on the M8 at Junction 18 Glanmire. At, it's at the slip road to the R639 and you are advised to take care on approach. So please be careful. But that one major delay is at the viaduct. We'll try and see if we can get more on that. According to, the, as I say, that listener, it is due to a car on fire. 0818 103 103. Yesterday we were inundated with people getting the e-flow scam text message. Well, a listener has just sent in a scam text that they got yesterday evening and the text reads Hi mum, I'm texting you off a friend's phone I smashed mine and their phone's about to die Can you call text me on my new number which is and it's um, an 083 number please and of course we know that 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 scam did the rounds before as well and it's somebody purporting to be your son or daughter and of course they're looking for you to wire them money because something's gone wrong and they're out and about and they need money and people have got caught with that uh, before. So be very careful if you do get a text message saying that it's from a family member and that something's happened to their phone. Ring them back on their own phone. Do not engage with them on the number that they give you, either the number they're texting from or the new number they're asking you to engage with. Always check back with somebody on the phone number that you know and trust. Well, the Transport Minister, Eamon Ryan, says his department's plans to tackle traffic congestion are not anti car. That was following the publication of the Climate Action Plan, which looks at a number of potential measures, including congestion charges. Socialist Party TD uh, Mick Barry, while in favour of car-free zones, says he's very much opposed to any form of a congestion charge. And Deputy Mick Barry joins me by WhatsApp uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Mick. Hi, Patricia. Uh, you're welcome to the programme. Now, the, the, the plan is to free up urban spaces for pedestrians, for cyclists and for public transport. Do you agree in principle that we need to remove some of the private vehicles from our cities and towns? Yes, absolutely. Um, but it should be done on a voluntary basis uh, rather than trying to um, browbeat people with increased parking charges or congestion charges. So, for example, what I'm talking about here, something that has been experimented with in other European countries and uh, European capital cities, big cities, has been the idea of free public transport. Um, Big success in Germany, uh, definite success in Spain. Uh, Government here, you know, they're very, um, they're foostering about with it. Uh, I mean, some of the the public transport uh, fares have been uh, cut, but no bold moves such as a, a move towards free public transport. Here in Cork, uh, we've been hearing for years and years about Cork Light Rail, uh, all the plans that have been drawn up and so on and so forth. 
we need to see action on the issue of uh, Cork uh, light rail. So I'm basically saying here, the pedestrianised uh, zones worked well, uh, kept after COVID, that's a positive. Uh, Car-free zones, yes, there needs to be a discussion on that, but yes. But there needs to be free public transport, which the government have set their face against. And no way are people going to stand for congestion charges and increased parking charges uh, that they were flying a kite on yesterday morning. Yeah, and, and it, it's interesting that you, you've mentioned the light rail transport for Cork because it did get mentioned. It made me smile when I heard Leo Varadkar uh, mention it yesterday. But he did rule out congestion charges that it won't be introduced during the current government uh, are in the near future. But we do know that congestion charges operate in other European cities. And, and of course, you know, our nearest neighbour, London, I think it's £15 a day now is what congestion charges have gone up to. Uh, why are you so against congestion charges? Uh, I'm against them for two reasons. Uh, first of all, they penalise ordinary motorists, ordinary people, uh, many of whom are just trying to get to work in the morning and who are struggling with the cost of living crisis. I'm also against them because um, I'm a supporter of radical action uh, to defend the climate. Uh, that needs to be done if there's to be a future for uh, future generations. But I think... Um, by bringing in policies like that, um, the Green Party actually alienate uh, ordinary people from the climate agenda that people are well disposed uh, towards. Um, so I think it's it's counterproductive in that sense as well. Yeah, because Eamon Ryan uh, did say that there would have to be full public uh, consultation. I mean, it, it's like... Turkey's voting for Christmas. I mean, there'd be a huge pushback, wouldn't there, to congestion charges and increased parking charges by members of the public? There would be. Uh, you mentioned London, where it's £15 sterling a day. Um, when the political establishment uh, wants to uh, bring in something which they know will be deeply unpopular, they fly kites, they test the water, they do a little probe. And that has been happening here on the issue of congestion charges in recent months. So the National Transport Authority have said that they favour congestion charges in the big cities at a rate of €10 a day per car and that they favour increasing parking charges four times over on what they were in 2016. The Commission on Taxation and Welfare has also given their support to the idea of congestion charges. And then yesterday morning, uh, Ryan was heading into the cabinet and he said this, you know, this is uh, going to be one of the issues uh, that are being looked at. They're testing the water. So it was important that a shot was fired across their bows in the doll yesterday. Uh, it was important that there was uh, a shot fired at the kites that were being uh, flown. Uh, and I think um, in his response to me, uh, Varadkar showed the nervousness of the political establishment by putting this very much on uh, the long finger. Although, by the way, when he was putting it on the long finger, he said, yeah, well, maybe we can look at it when we have the likes of the Cork Metropolitan Transport, by which I think he meant the Cork Light Rail System. Um, but we don't yeah, accept, and he spoke, don't accept he spoke about that, the metro. That, that is being put on the long finger. Yeah, and he spoke about <laughs> when, when the metro would be there, which would take people in and out of um, uh, Dublin Airport. And, and, and I thought it was interesting when he said when all the vehicles are electric and there's no taxes coming in from petrol and diesel. Uh, to me, that was another way of saying, well, if we can't get money out of you from petrol and diesel, we'll get it out of you on congestion charges. But just 
just looking at congestion charges, if there was a congestion charge introduced, could that money then not be ring-fenced for better public transport and for more routes, especially, say, for people living in rural areas? Yeah, we don't need it to uh, ring-fence um, money for a better public transport and people in um, rural areas. Um, we pick up the papers this morning and we discover that the government is looking at a budget surplus of 16 billion euro this year, right? Uh, now, the argument is made that the corporation profits might not, uh, the taxes there might not be there forever in a day, and we can have a certain discussion on that. But the, the point is that the government is sitting on uh, a huge cash pile at the moment and doesn't have to be looking at, at penalising hard-pressed motorists. The money is there in order to invest in schemes like that, and it, 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 it should be done. OK, and just when you mentioned at the start about the free public transport, how much would that cost? Have you a costing on that? Would it be very expensive to introduce? Um, it wouldn't be cheap, but it wouldn't be as expensive as you would, uh, you would expect it to be. So the, the amount of money that's raised in fares in the state uh, is about 600 million euro a year. So you sacrifice those fares, there's a cost of 600 million uh, first off. The, the more significant cost uh, would be that if you kept, the, say, for example, the bus fleet at its current size, you would have a, a huge increase in demand, but you wouldn't be able to meet it. So you would need to invest in heavily uh, in the bus fleet. So you're, you're looking at a sum of money that would be north of a billion euro, but my God, would it be a worthwhile investment? I mean, in Berlin, when they introduced this uh, last summer, just over a period of three months, uh, there was a reduction in the carbon emissions into the atmosphere of 1.8 million tonnes. Wow. Uh, hugely successful in that regard. And that's before you even get into the question of how much it would benefit people in their pocket in the middle of a cost of living crisis. OK, and just while I have you on, Mick, because I started um, the programme this morning by talking about the overcrowding that's going on at Cork University Hospital and the Mercy Hospital and the INMO uh, coming out saying, you know, using the word dangerous, I think was the word that they used to describe what's happening at the Mercy Hospital. You raised this in the, in the doll uh, yesterday. I think you described it as unacceptable. I, 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 what I was actually doing is I was quoting Liam Conway of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, uh, who said that it was unacceptable, and he was referring specifically uh, to the fact that you had um, a dangerous uh, situation, in his opinion, uh, at the Mercy University uh, uh, Hospital. Uh, the point that I made was that up until now, uh, Limerick has been the capital city of hospital overcrowding, and that under the watch of Leo Varadkar and uh, who I described as the three quiet men, ministers Martin Coveney and McGrath, it looks as though that mantle is passing to uh, Cork. The record numbers uh, for the CUH of people admitted without a bed up until yesterday was uh, 90. Uh, that record was broken yesterday, went up to 92. The previous record for the Mercy was 38. That record was also broken yesterday, went up to uh, 40, 132 people, um, um, you know, w admitted without a bed in those two hospitals alone uh, yesterday. That's a scandal. And 
uh, the ministers should break their silence on this. They need to be called out on this. It's a disgrace. Yeah, and as I mentioned, it's you know, it's, it's, we're into close to the end of April. This is in January when we're in the middle of, say, a, a flu epidemic and a flu season. Like We've never had these record numbers at this time of the year. And Gronia, one of our listeners, said, my husband is in, uh, is in CUH at the moment. He was in A&E. He sat on a chair for 33 hours before he finally got a bed. You wouldn't want to be dying, says Gronia. It's a third world situation. You cannot meet a doctor. Staff are running around and under extreme pressure. My husband finally got the bed, but he had to wait 33 hours in a chair. It's appalling. Patients were everywhere. There wasn't even a vacant chair or spaces on the floor. Yeah, and behind all of those numbers are patients like uh, Gronya's husband. All right, listen, Mick, we leave it there. Thank you for that. Thank you, Patricia. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. That is Socialist Party uh, Doll Deputy Mick Barry. And just staying on the hospital situation, Pat Infomoy says it's very easy for the INMO to give a trolley count each day, but they should be given the numbers of those bed blockers. Oh, and I hate using that word. Uh, they're people who are available for discharge and there's nowhere for them uh, to go. They should be, because Pat says that's what's happening. That's at the other end of the health system. You've got people who, who are in an acute bed that shouldn't be in a computer an acute bed we all should be we also he says that they the INMO should also be looking at the number of step down beds that are available and John says do we need to do something like what we did to stop the water charges uh, campaign and get out on the streets we need to get power back we need to do something to sort out the health service ultimately the buck stops with the Minister for Health and then further up along the line the Taoiseach we have people who will never get to see a consultant unless they go private because that's another issue of waiting lists Now Cork County Council is to ask the Planning and Development Strategic Policy Committee to outline a clear planning policy with regard to the construction of log cabins or other similar structures The issue was raised by Fianna Fáil Councillor William O'Leary who joins me this morning Good morning to you William uh, good morning, Patricia. And, and you're welcome. Now, have you and other councillors heard from people who have applied for planning permission for, say, a log cabin or kind of a wooden uh, structure and were simply refused? Absolutely, Patricia. I suppose the reason I, I, I put down the motion uh, two weeks, a couple of weeks ago at Car County Council is because I suppose uh, over the last six months I've been in contact with about seven or eight people. I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit biased here. These are specifically in rural areas who would have tried to have done things in the correct manner, who would have been interested in putting down a log, log cabin style unit or similar similar or modular style uh, modular style unit in, in their own land. Um, they would have gone through the proper channels and would have applied for planning permission with Car County Council. In all instances, if the application was either refused or would have been withdrawn because a compromise could not have been found with the planning authority. The reason for this, Patricia, is because with regard in rural, with rural areas, the planning policy is set out and the design of houses is set out on the rural design guide. Okay, so this yeah. is a template where applicants and architects and engineers, it's a template they would go off of when they're designing um, a planning application for a specific area. Within that template, the rural design guide, there is no guidance on where log cabins should be, the, the design of them, the material used, and because they're not within the rural design guide, the planning policy can't. In essence, they can't give planning for them until that design guide is updated or amended. To yeah, and, and I take it therein lies the problem. That rural design guide and that template would have been put in place before our current housing crisis. 
Absolutely. So it hasn't been updated in a number of years. Um, I suppose, you look, over the last number of years, the people who supplied these type of structures, be it log cabin or modular style, style housing, the, the number of businesses that supplied these structures would have increased, which in turn would have led to an increase in advertisement, which in turn again would have led to an increase in interest in people who are interested in having this style of housing as, as, as an option for housing. So I suppose, you know, it, 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 as, the, as I said to Cork County Council, the issue is not going to go away. You know, they have to look at this. They have to look at their own planning policy. They have to look at the rural design guide. It has to be updated to allow this as an option. And I'm assuming from for many people, they're looking at these log cabins or these modular uh, homes to solve their current housing uh, crisis. And particularly when you're talking about people in rural areas who might have some land but they probably can't get a mortgage to build on, on their own land. Yeah, I, I suppose, Patricia, the people I've built, dealt with, you know, people I still think will always strive to have their traditional style build or block, block build, cement finish. You know, I think that's still the goal with everyone. But I, I, there are still a cohort of people who see this as a, a very a sustainable type of housing. And, you know, I suppose they've just been hit with, um, with, with, with roadblock after roadblock with regards to their applications. Um, you know, I, I think if the if the policy was changed tomorrow morning, I, I still don't think you'd see this major influx of people who are applying for like cabins. But at least it's there as an option if people saw if it was cost friendly to people, if it was sustainable. I mean, I suppose the reply I got back from Car County Council was um, it was there was both positivity and negativity within the reply in the sense that, you know, firstly they said that these types of um, structures are more suited to wooded areas and to dense forest forest forested areas I used a bit of tongue in cheek with the executive up there on the day and I said like in the name of God are you expecting Red Riding Hood to apply for a planning application <laughs> you know and <laughs> I was getting the eyes down at me but, um, <laughs> but you know I, I think they have to you know they have to see that this is a, a sustainable type of housing well, especially as as we've mentioned, we have a housing crisis. We have people desperate to have something that they can call their own, that they've got their own key, they can put into a front door. And we know these log cabins and these modular homes uh, in the way that they are currently being built. I mean, many of these last for 60 plus years. They absolutely do. And the other side that I've seen, you know, in dealing with people over the last 12 months since COVID particularly is, you know, people might they might be living at home, you know, with their parents or whatnot. They have a small plot of land next to the house and because they've been working from home now since COVID, they've seen this as an alternative structure for extra office space, you know, it gets them out of the house, yeah. gets them into their own space for working, for, for, for their work. And, you know, again, it's just been roadblock after roadblock. You know, I, I fully accept, you know, a lot of the time when we set out our policy, um, in Cork County Council were bound to departmental guidelines across a number of matters, you know, but I, this is different. This is within the gift of the local authority to, to amend our oral design guide and, and this is what I'm asking to be done. They have committed to looking at it. Uh, as you know, the wheels of bureaucracy in this country can move quite slowly, but I think in this instance, I think it's something they need to really expedite in the, in, within the confines of their own planning SPC and Cork County Council and see if this can, if, if some if some level of movement can be put on the planning policy. Yeah, for, because for you would also, would you worry that some people might decide to put up one of these log cabins without planning permission? Patricia, it, it's quite possible and it's happened because it's either been 
we either put it up or we go homeless, do you know? Yeah, so yeah. You can understand why I, people I would take the chance. Yeah, yeah. And I've dealt with enforcement. You know, with Clark County Council didn't come down with enforcement or the, whatever the local authority is and you're trying to work with enforcement then. And I suppose enforcement, because there's no guidance, there's no planning policy around it, you know, it's black and, it's a black and white issue for them at the moment then they have to enforce. Is this a nationwide issue? I well, <clears throat> I saw. I I, I I think it is. I saw a doll deputy last week um, from another county who said um, they should be exempt from planning. I don't think that. I, I think the planning policy should play a role around it, you know, and, and regulate it where they do go up in rural areas. But like I said, the, the policy needs to allow for them, you know. Um, so it is a, it is an issue, particularly. Particularly, I would. I, I, I'm not saying it's completely confined to rural areas, but it's mainly an issue in rural areas where people. Well, boy, that's where people have land. I mean, you're yeah, not, absolutely. you know, people yeah. living in the in the middle of a you know a large town, a city, an urban area mightn't have you know if they're living with their parents unless there's a very large back garden that you know they they won't have the space. So it is going to be an issue that's going to affect more people from rural Ireland than urban Ireland. It is, and as I said. Um, at the full meeting of Cork County Council last week, the issue's not going to go away. It, it really isn't, you know. Um, so it needs to be de- dealt with head on and a, a, a solution found. And let's update our role design guide to to whatever extent to allow for these structures. Or, you know, and not just log cabins, modular style housing, to allow for them within within the within the context of our own planning policy across and, and, all the local authorities. And yet, yet every local authority across the country can erect modular homes for Ukrainian refugees without planning permission. That doesn't it's, seem very fair. It's very contradictory across the board, you know. Um, we, we're being told um, that there is new policy coming from the department with regards to rural housing across the board in the country. So I think on Car County Council, this is what they're waiting for now, to see what that guidance is setting out and then how we can you know, update our own uh, design guide to allow for these, you know. But again, you know, we've seen John Corbett where policy can be expedited, where we thought it never could be, or where Good things point. that we thought couldn't be done or never would be done were done in the context of COVID, you know. And I think this is another instance here. We're kind of falling back into the trap of things will be done slowly, it'll be done in time, you know. Whereas we've seen now they can be done within a speedy manner. And I think this is something we can use in the context of Expedia. Yeah, where, where there's a will, there's a way, well, uh, William. So now it's gone to the planning SPC and you have to wait for them to come back, is it? Is that where well, you're at? Well, I suppose it'll go to the planning SPC and Car County Council for discussion. Um, but uh, look, they did meet last week and I suppose, as I pointed out previously, there there is new rural housing guidance coming from the department later this year across the board nationwide. So I think they're waiting to see what that entails and to see how they can fit this into uh, that context in. But again, it's, it's it's a waiting game, which is disappointing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and and as you say, disappointing for those uh, for those individuals who had applied and would you know see this as a solution to their current housing issue. You know, hugely disappointing for them. Absolutely, hugely disappointing. And and and, and until change is made here, they're left in limbo. You know. Um, so, look, it is disappointing for them. I'm dealing with applicants on a weekly basis, you know. Um, at the end of the day, you know, when someone comes to me for assistance with planning permission, my, you know, and if the application you feel isn't viable, your first 
duty I feel is to tell is to save people money and not to tell them to waste money on an application or on engineers or on consultants, you know. So unfortunately, this is the line we're going to have to take with people who have an interest in these types of types of structures until the guidance is updated. I, I think it will happen, Patricia. By the way, I don't want to be all negative here. Yeah. I, think, I, I think it will happen. It's a question of when. Yeah, yeah. When well, yeah, the decision needs to be made and made quickly. Listen, yeah. uh, William, keep us informed on on this one because there'll be a lot of interest in it. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining thanks. us on the program. Thanks, uh, good thank morning you. to you. That is uh, Fianna Fáil uh, councillor William O'Leary uh, with the need for the council to take a look at the current planning policies that they have for log cabins are for modular homes, but it it does seem uh, a little bit contradictory that the councils themselves can put in modular homes for Ukrainian refugees and then you've got a family who've got a bit of land and they might have a son or a daughter in their 30s still sleeping in the bedroom that they grew up in and they want to move out, they want their own independence, the bit of land is there and they can afford to put a log cabin or a modular home on it and then they get turned down because the Rural Design Guide doesn't feature log cabins and uh, modular homes and I wonder how many people, and I did mention it uh, to William, have simply taken the chance and sort of said, yeah we'll put up the log cabin, it can't be seen from the side of the road or it's hidden away uh, somewhere. I, I think there's probably a lot of people have already gone down that route rather than um, risk being turned down for planning. Lorraine says, well done to the Irish Nurses and Medical uh, Organisation for calling out what's happening at our hospitals. Lorraine had occasion recently to visit the ANE and she couldn't believe what she witnessed. She said the staff are literally run off their feet. Uh, it really is so unfair on the staff and that's one of the reasons that the Irish Nurses and Medical uh, and Irish, Irish Nurses and Midwife Organisation are coming out. I mean, they're coming out, not, I mean, obviously they're coming out on behalf of patients as well, but they're very much coming out on behalf of their members who are working in situations where they are barely getting a break. I mean, I heard a nurse say that they were, they did a 12-hour shift. don't know if it was in, in an, an, an A&E department or was it on a, on a ward and uh, they basically got one 10-minute break during the whole day. Uh, and they literally just kept going. And somebody was saying, oh, do, you know, what did, you, what did you do to go to the toilet? And she said, oh, I didn't have to worry about going to the toilet because I didn't eat or drink uh, for the day. That it was one 10 minute break early on in the shift and then just simply had to uh, keep going. I mean, that situation, that just completely leads to burnout. And that's so unfair on the staff. And that's then how mistakes uh, are made. And then we hear about uh, awful tragedies when mistakes are made. We were talking about planning permission for modular homes and for large cabins and there seems to be seems to be a big problem in rural areas with people uh, trying to get permission and getting turned down and this is to put up a log cabin on land like maybe their parents land or maybe a bit of land that they have themselves but because of our planning laws and they're at this stage now outdated they were planning laws that were put in place before there was ever the notion of log cabins or modular homes so they do certainly need to be uh, looked at. Michael says Patricia I wasn't aware of this. Here's a man in the know is our Michael in Castletown there. Prior to 1963, planning permission was not required in rural Ireland. It was only required in urban areas. The 1963 Planning Act for Rural Ireland was brought in in 1964 by Sean Lamass. And the reason for it was Sean Lamass had paid a visit to the Lieber factory site in Killarney where he discovered that they didn't require planning permission to build it on the spot where they had built the factory. He went back to Dublin and hence the burden of planning permission was placed on rural Ireland. The Act, according to Michael, is completely outdated. It needs to be scrapped and a new Act written 
by the people of rural Ireland for the people of rural Ireland and not written by people who live in Dublin for. I could fill you in more, but I'd be here all day texting you, says uh, Michael from Castletown Bear. And I do think that's a good point when you're looking at planning laws that are for rural areas. They're planning laws that should suit the rural community and therefore should be written. And certainly a lot of input should be given from people who live in a rural Ireland. You make a lot of sense uh, there, Michael. And then Martin in Formoy uh, says the only way to fix the lack of housing situation is to stop all these foreigners coming here to live. Nobody will admit it, but that's the problem, says Martin. And send foreigners who are here home. Then you'll see lots of empty houses, says Martin. In OK, can I just say, I don't know what you mean by send all the foreigners home. Uh, be, be very careful what you wish for. I had a hospital uh, appointment last month and I, I was in for one, a, a day procedure thing inside in the hospital. And I couldn't get over the number of migrant workers that were working in the hospital. And I started counting up during the day that I was in. I dealt with 12 people only two of them uh, were Irish one was the anaesthetist and one was the ward sister on the day ward that I was in all the rest were migrant workers and I, you know I came away from that day saying thank God that we have migrant workers or we would not have a health service. So be careful, Martin, when you're saying that all of the foreigners that are in this country, because by making a statement like that, you're including all the migrant workers who come to this country to do the jobs that we either don't have people qualified for or they also come to do the jobs that we many Irish people don't want uh, to do. And actually, we could have a problem with teachers in the not too distant uh, future because we already have a school staffing crisis in this country. And while that's going on, I'm reading on the front page of today's examiner, there is an Australian recruitment drive which is offering Irish teachers visa fees, travel costs and competitive salaries to leave our shores and to go to Australia to teach instead. Now this recruitment drive is travelling between Dublin, Belfast, us here in Cork, Limerick and Sligo and they're they're coming in the coming days and it's a recruitment campaign and they're hoping to sign up international teachers, i.e. Irish teachers, to teach in Catholic schools in Central Australia, Northern Australia and Western Victoria. It's been, this recruitment campaign is run by the the Diocese of Ballarat and Sandhurst. They're obviously an Australian diocese. And the project is offering to pay teachers their visa, their sponsorship fees, and they'll also reimburse flights up to a cost of €3,000. And the diocese uh, has 95 primary schools and 25 secondary schools. The campaign is also offering more incentives for Irish teachers who opt to work in rural areas because Australia have the same problem that we have, that not everybody wants to work in in a rural uh, area. So if they can match up a teacher to a small rural school, that particular teacher will receive a relocation reimbursement to the value of €6,000. There are competitive salaries on offer down under in Australia and it's very much based on a teacher's prior experience. Uh, For example, it's almost €50,000 for a young teacher who just has two years experience 
but that can jump to €72,000 a year for a teacher that has 11 years experience or more. And then when teachers go out to Australia to work, they're also able to apply for additional leadership allowances and that can be anything worth up to €8,000. And then when you compare that to the average starting salary for a primary school uh, teacher who started teaching after 2011, because of course 2011 was when the new pay pay scales came in for new uh, teachers. They currently stand at just over 40 and a half thousand euros. So those same teachers would be getting close to 50,000 euro by moving to uh, Australia. An average of 1,200 classes per day in primary and special schools did not have a teacher available to teach the classes and that was between September and December of last year. That's according to the Irish National Teachers Organisation, their General Secretary John uh, Boyle uh, who said the vast majority of these vacancies were in areas with high rents. I know I have a friend of mine who teaches in Dublin and it literally is a nightmare in Dublin to try to get teachers to fill some of the posts uh, there. So John Boyle says all options must be looked at to ensure that no child in this country is left without a qualified teacher. And he points out we're only 20 weeks until the start of the next academic term in September. And he says we mustn't leave any stone unturned in our efforts here in Ireland to tackle the genuine obstacles that are preventing teachers from taking on roles are causing them to leave roles in certain high cost uh, areas. He said efforts should also be ramped up to help teachers overseas, the ones who've already left us and gone to Australia and gone to America and gone to Europe and gone to the UK to try and get some of them to return to Ireland. Like he suggests, you know, giving them uh, a full incremental credit for every day that they have been teaching abroad. He's, He's talking about shortening their pay scales and he also wants to restore the allowances that were cut to the new teachers uh, for all teachers since uh, 2012 uh, the Irish government he says must act quickly to make working in Ireland's primary education an attractive prospect uh, for all and you can be well sure that this um, Australian recruitment team are going in there saying you know come to Australia wonderful country uh, to work in and you'll be able to afford rent or you might be able to afford to buy a property even though let's be honest Australian house prices are expensive as well but they'll do everything to paint a rosy a picture as possible but shocking to think that 1,000 200 classes per day from September to December. Children sat in a classroom where there literally wasn't a teacher available to teach. And if you speak to any principal, they will tell you their biggest nightmare every single day. And their dread is that they're going to get a phone call to say that a teacher is sick, is unwell, is not able to uh, come in on a given day and then trying to find a substitute uh, teacher. We have a shortage of substitute uh, teachers as well. So we could end up being in the situation if this school staffing crisis doesn't get sorted in this country, we're going to end up like that Australian recruitment drive. We're going to end up having to send recruitment teams abroad. A little bit like what we do for the health services, we send recruitment teams abroad to try to get nurses and doctors and and different therapists to come to work in this country. We're suddenly going to be doing the very same thing for teachers. Did we ever think that that would happen? 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. C103 John. 
A referee for paintball and splatball is required to work in the Demandway area and some maintenance of paintball fields and equipment uh, also required 085 806 360 excavator operators are wanted to work in the Blackpool area. CVs please to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. A laboratory technician is wanted to work at the Donkey Sanctuary in Liscarroll. Details are available on their website and their website is thedonkeysanctuary.org.uk. And Dairy Gold Co-op Superstores in Fairmount are recruiting a retail store manager with a knowledge please of Agri. CVs to careersdg at dairygold.ie. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. High levels of inflation to rip off homeowners. Michael Kilcoyne is chair of the Consumers Association of Ireland and he joins me to explain more. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning to you, Patricia. Now, can you explain to us in what way are insurers trying to almost have it both ways? Well, what insurers are doing is they um, have been increasing the cost of house insurance. Uh, we know that, according to a recent report, they have increased it by up to 800%. And at the same time, with people sorry, your, your, claim, your, sorry, your phone is just fading there just a, a little bit. Just repeat that. They've increased it by how much? By 18% on average last year. Um, and... Uh, when consumers come to make a claim, um, the insurance companies are saying, in many cases, you're underinsured. Uh, and the reason for this is because uh, inflation uh, in the building industry ranges between 20 and 30 percent. So, if you um, have, uh, if your house is worth, uh, say, 200,000 euro, and you're only insured for the value of 150,000, um, then the insurance company will only pay uh, three quarters uh, of what the claim might be, even though the claim might be, um, say, damage to your roof from a storm, damage to um, your house where there's a fire, damage where there's a water leak. Um, they, They will only pay a percentage because they'll be saying that your total insurance um that you have insured your property for is less than the uh, replacement value or the repairs of the whole house. Even though, um, in many cases, um, you are dependent on them to adjust, um, the because they adjust the premium, you're dependent on them to adjust the value uh, of the property. Um, but in many cases, they just send out the renewal notices, um, and we're saying... Um, that they should, um, when they're renewing the uh, policy, they should uh, make it very clear to the person um, what the cost of carrying out repairs on their house would be. You see, even though you might have, um, uh, you might be, uh, have, because of the huge inflation and the huge costs of, of building, um, they are, in fact, increasing the premium and not uh, increasing what you'll get in, in terms of your claim. 
Yeah, it seems it. It just seems really un, really un, unfair. So if if I was to make a claim for a repair, now not for a full rebuild, and I'm yes. underinsured, my payout will be less. Because right. I because I'm underinsured. That is t- I mean, I, I I thought that this only came into it on the full rebuild. I mean, it it just seems very unfair if it's just a repair, as you say, like a leaky roof or there was a burst pipe. I'm not getting the whole house rebuilt. I'm just getting a repair done. And even though they have charged you a premium for the full house, the premium that they charge you might be for a house that's uh, of a lesser value, or they may not have the correct value. For the house, but yes, what you're saying is exactly right. If, for example, your storm got, um, your your uh, chimney got hit by the storm and cracked or or, or not, uh, and it costs um, um, say four thousand, five thousand to repair the to replace the the chimney, even though you have insured your house for um, say two hundred thousand, they're saying that if the value of your house, the rebuild value of your house. 250,000 then you will only get four-fifths of whatever ah, the claim is. That four-fifths is, of that, the five that is, and, and do you believe many of us homeowners are underinsured therefore at the moment? Well it would appear that many uh, homeowners are underinsured from the number of people that are making um, complaints about this because these guys are increasing the premium um, without um, and still not uh, guaranteeing you cover on events that will happen uh, in, in your house. And that's why we welcome the direction from the central bank to all insurance companies to write to the uh, uh, insurance companies telling them to bring to their attention of their customers the fact that uh, they may be insured and to explain the whole thing. Because most customers think exactly like you think. They think that, uh, you know, if, if something uh, all happens in their house, like the roof gets damaged or there's a bit of flooding or um, that because they have insurance that they're covered for the replacement cost, it appears that many of them are not. Yeah, John, one of our, our listeners said he thought that when his home insurance premium went up recently, he thought that it went up to cover the rebuilding costs. Uh, no, it appears that what they have done is they're charging you eighteen uh, percent on average. That's the figures um, that that the CSO have um, uh, supplied. Um, but in, in fact, uh, in many cases, the value of of what they cover has gone down. So we are saying, yeah, they're trying to have it both ways. Yeah, they're trying yeah, hundred percent. And and even that eighteen um, percent. Uh, premiums for home insurance are 18% more expensive in, in year on year. Yes. I mean, that's way more than the general inflation. It's, t- it's twice the rate of general inflation. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, I do accept that it's less than the cost of building inflation. However, um, um, like you're insured for, and, and the damage, say that they have to, to re- the replacement or the repairs or whatever it is uh, of the damage is, is 5000 um, you unless your your full house is insured at the full value of the replacement of the house, even though the house doesn't have to be replaced, then they're they're charging you um, they're charging you um, for the full thing, and they will only pay pro rata 
Yeah, they'd take off minus the minus the the underinsurance, uh, underinsured part. Uh, and I know it's uh, to try to find out how much you know the rebuilding, the cost of rebuilding a home has gone up by. I mean, it can be anything from fourteen percent up to twenty six percent. So, are, are you saying that when we go to next renew our insurance policy, or maybe now contact your insurance uh, company, do we need to factor in that much? Is it? Well, you need to factor in the you need to insure your property for the replacement value of the property that's a full rebuild that's a yeah yes that's exactly what the insurance company are saying yeah yeah and you know there's very few people have to do a complete rebuild on on their house most people when they're making any kind of a, if they ever make a claim on their home and insurance there's very few looking for a full rebuild you'd be very unlucky that your your house would be leveled the only occasion it was really arise would be uh, if, for example, the house is burned or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, major fire, yeah. yeah. Major um, fire. Somebody says, this is Michael. Um, uh, hi, Patricia. Uh, I recently got my insurance premium renewal and yes, it was gone up uh, over last year. But I, it also came with a letter saying exactly what Michael Kilcoyne is saying this morning, telling me it's my responsibility to make sure I'm insured for the correct amount. But when you go on the surveyor's website, it's very hard to work out as it doesn't give rural farmhouses. Yeah, it, it, you see, it should, it needs to, to, to show you in very clear um, figures what the value of your property is. It, needs to, it doesn't need to be um, in small figures down the thing. It needs to be very clear. Mm. That's what we're asking to be done. We're, we're saying these guys are... Um, shoving up the price, yet what you get when you have a claim is gone down. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. It, it really does seem uh, so unfair. Somebody's saying, I thought car insurance uh, was after coming down. I just got in my premium reminder and it's gone up by over €120. Euro. The insurance companies seemed to be able to do what uh, they like. Well, well, they have been. All the financial institutions in this country have been doing what they like and continue to do what they like. But on car insurance, anytime we hear somebody say that, we always say shop around. You, you, you will and get... And I say the same thing yeah. about house insurance. Yeah, shop around. Um, yeah, correct, correct. But with the rising cost of living, Michael, do you worry that some, home, some homeowners may decide to just not take out home insurance in an effort to try to save money? Well, they can't afford to pay it and you cannot have some service that you can't pay for. And consumers are busy people get up in the morning, take their children to, to school, um, go and do their day's work, uh, pick up their children from the crash on the way back, um, get them their tea, put them to bed. They haven't time to be looking at what is the house um, when you, they get the renewal premium, what has the, the value of the house been changed by. They pay insurance companies to do this. Uh, and many of these people are paying by direct debit each month. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It depends on the insurance company to ensure that they're insured fully, but the insurance company, as we now see, its main interest is in collecting the premium. Okay, so the key message is uh, shop around and never accept a premium that just comes through your door or or without looking at it and reading it in detail. All right, listen, uh, sound advice, uh, Michael. Thank you for that. All uh, right, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good morning to you, Michael Kilcoyne, there, who is chair of the Consumers Association of Ireland. Be very careful when it comes to under-insuring your house. And of course, you you may go to under-insure thinking you're going to save yourself a bit of money on the premium. Uh, But then, lo and behold, if God forbid something uh, goes wrong and you try to make a claim, you might get back all of the costs. Now, this weekend, we'll see a celebration of the ongoing collaboration between Ballymaloo and Birdwatch Ireland on the occasion of the National Garden Bird Survey to chat about the weekend and what birds are currently visiting our gardens at the moment. I'm joined by uh, Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland. Good morning to you, Niall. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You're very welcome to the programme. Now, I am a very early riser and I'm already starting to hear the most wonderful dawn courses. It really is worth getting up early, isn't it, at the moment, just to hear the birds? Oh, oh it absolutely is. It's my favourite time of year. The, the birds are really getting into gear now. The, the nesting season is upon us and, and the birds are singing to proclaim their territories, to, to attract their mates in. And it's just building and building each morning now. So it's absolutely glorious. And it's something that I would highly recommend to people. You know, it's, wor- it's worth setting the alarm clock um, early once or twice a year just to hear that, I think. And it, it doesn't, is, is it only at this time of the year that we get that wonderful dawn chorus? Yes, generally. So that the birds are really only singing in big numbers in the, the spring and the summer. So it goes sort of the, the dawn course season, I would normally say, goes through from April up until until June, with a kind of period now from mid-April through to mid-May, that kind of time really being the peak. Because that's when the birds are, are trying to impress a potential mate. They're trying to defend their territories because, because for birds, birdsong, it's a very serious business. They're not singing just for the fun of it or because they want to sound beautiful. They're singing because it's actually quite aggressive behaviour. They want to tell all the the neighbouring birds that this is their territory once they've actually then got down to the business of nesting and they have hungry chicks to feed some singing will still happen they still have to pr- proclaim those territories but much more of their time is taken up uh, with with, uh, with looking after those chicks and then once, once the chicks have left the nest and the breeding season is finished so in the, in the autumn and the winter generally most bird species don't sing at all because they have no longer any need to do so one uh, very notable exception would be the robin though the robin uh, sings all year round which is quite unusual and what are the what are the most common birds we can expect to see and hear in our gardens at the moment? 
Well, it, it a little bit depends on where you are and what habitat's near you. But as a general rule, the, the, the commonest birds of the dawn course you will hear um, at this time of year would be the blackbird. It's a very widespread bird. One of the first birds to start singing in the morning uh, because they have a very large eye. The birds with the largest eyes sing earliest in the morning because that light gathers, uh, the, 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 those eyes gather more light. And so they're able to see danger coming. So a bird isn't comfortable to sing until it knows it can see danger coming because it's giving its position away to every, every bird in the neighborhood. Along with the blackbird, you often get would get song thrushes and missile thrushes, two other very beautiful singers. Uh, most areas would have robins, a lovely sort of uh, twittering, uh, very melodic kind of song that they have. And another one people are often hear would be the wren. It's our second smallest bird, but it's one of the loudest. It's a, it's a very, very loud jumble of notes that they sing. And so they're the ones people would hear. Also, also wood pigeons and collared doves are very vocal at the moment, moment making, making cooing noises. But some people in some areas may be lucky enough to hear cuckoos arriving in now and starting to starting to sing in the mornings. Um, other birds like willow warblers, migrant birds from Africa, like willow warblers and chiffchaffs, uh, these two tiny little birds that migrate all that long distance. Uh, they're singing at the moment as well. So th- there's lots happening. It's really yeah. probably my favourite song it, of all the black cap. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, collared doves I have a pair yes. who visit my garden and, and eat out of uh, one of my uh, bird uh, feeders are they partnered? Yes so they, they would be at this stage in fact uh, the doves are unusual birds the collared doves don't really have any set nesting season at all so you often would get the pair together for the whole year uh, exactly. they will nest even in the middle of winter if, yeah. if the weather is, is if the weather is good enough unlike most birds so yeah they could well they could well be in a pair at this stage Oh yeah I, li- I like to think it's Mr and, and Mrs that come into the garden, <laughs> come oh, into the garden. Yes, Now exactly. how do you identify the different birds that you're hearing I mean I was out this morning in the garden listening to the long chorus and wondering God what, which, which bird is making which sound how, how do you go about learning the different sounds. It is. It can be a bit tricky, but like with everything, uh, practice makes perfect. And uh, the main thing, the main thing I would suggest is to get out and enjoy listening to the sounds in their own right. But one thing I would recommend is try find a bird and look at it with ideally with a pair of binoculars if you have them, but even with the naked eye while it's singing and try to fix that song in your head so that you get to know it. When you when, when you see it with your own eyes, it makes it your brain makes a connection, so you associate the image with the sound. Uh, I would get to know some of the most common birds. So the, so the blackbird, uh, the song thrush, and the robin would be three very good ones to start with and then when you hear other bird songs you have something to compare them with you can say well it's a bit like a blackbird but it's a bit faster and a bit higher those kind of things some people also like to um, have certain ways to, to memorize songs so, so certain birds would sing the same song all the time, the same the same tune. So a uh, classic example is a lovely bird called the Yellowhammer, a little uh, yellow um, sparrow-like bird. And uh, they sing a sort of twittery song with us, a slur at the end. And that's often been written down as like they're saying, a little bit of bread and no cheese. And it doesn't really sound like that, but it gives you the cadence of it. So like, and then at the end, like this, little bit of bread and no cheese. That's one way to remember that. The chiff chaff, it's one of the easiest birds to recognize because it sings its name. It goes chiff, chaff, chaff, chiff, Oh, I know that sound, yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. That's the chiff chaff. And then the cuckoo is one of the easiest of all. Yeah. A lot of people will mix up, though, the collared dove and the wood pigeon and the cuckoo because um, they, make, they make a cooing noise. If you haven't heard a cuckoo before, you might mistake them. But the general rule of thumb is if you have to ask yourself whether it was a cuckoo you heard or not, then it wasn't a cuckoo. Because when you hear the real thing, it's unmistakable. Even if you've never heard it before, you know that must be a cuckoo. Um, but um, it really practice makes perfect. Uh, I would definitely recommend getting out on some of Birdwatch Ireland's upcoming dawn chorus and dusk chorus outings. We have all, we have quite a few of them all around the country coming up. Um, they're well worth doing. 
because you'll have experts on hand to, to, to show you show you the ropes there. There's also an excellent app you can get um, for uh, both for, for uh, Apple and for Android. It's called Merlin Bird ID, Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N. It's an American product from the Cornell uh, Laboratory of Ornithology, but it covers European birds and it's extremely good at identifying birds by sound. Merlin Bird ID. Merlin Bird ID, M-E-R-L-I-N. Okay. All right, right, okay, I'll take a look at that. Now, you're, the Irish Garden Bird Survey, That's uh, that, mm. that's you, you run that over the winter into the early spring, isn't it? That ended in February, was it? That's correct, yes. So we've, we've been doing it for, for almost 35 years now, and it runs from uh, for 13 weeks from the from the end of November through to the end of February. So it's always the same period each year, so we can compare the data year on year. Um, for the last few years, it's been very kindly uh, sponsored by our friends in Ballymaloo. We're very grateful for that support, uh, and that's really helped us to promote the survey more and to get more people involved with it. And then we have thousands of households all across the country in all 32 counties of Ireland who take part in this. And what we ask people to do is to send in and the details on, on a form or even online of the different species they see coming into their garden each week, but also the highest number of each species they see at any one time. I know that sounds a little bit um, a little bit complicated. We actually have a video on our, our YouTube channel. Um, if you look for Birdo Charland on YouTube, you'll find it, um, showing you exactly how to do it. It's actually quite simple once you get the hang of it. I uh, will warn people, it does get very addictive. So once you start, <laughs> um, you really get hooked into it. And especially if you can convince your, your friends and neighbours to do it too, you'll, the competition often arises. But that data we get from that survey, it tells us so much about what's happening with our bird populations. And then when we can compare them year on year over several decades, it's just invaluable. Okay, Mary says, uh, could you ask Niall, uh, please, why do we never see juvenile pigeons? Is it true in the saying that they do not leave the nest until they are older, says Mary? Well, most birds won't leave the nest until they're pretty much fully grown. I think that's one of the one of the mistakes people often make with with birds. They think that when the when the youngsters are out of the nest, that they're going to be noticeably smaller than their parents, but they're not. So for most birds, when when the time comes for them to actually leave the nest, they're already fully grown. Their feathers might look different. So the robins are a perfect example of this. Young robins don't really look like their parents. Um, they instead of having a that that lovely red breast and face that the, the robins have, they have sort of speckles on them like thrushes. But they're already completely. Fully fully grown, they're the same, the same size and shape as the adults. And it's the same case with the pigeons. So the pigeons, um, they do leave the nest, they still may only be a few weeks old, but they're already fully grown. So people just don't recognise them as being the babies. Okay, and somebody else wants to know, should we continue to feed the birds right throughout the summer months? Uh, this person said, I always feed in the winter months and I'm unsure what to do in the summer months. Well, well, certainly the most important time to do it is during the winter months. So that's what we would definitely recommend. If you have to choose a time of year to do it, certainly do it in the winter and the birds need the most help. Having said that, if you can if you can manage to do it during the summer, there's no harm in doing that. It can give the birds a bit of a boost. I would caution against putting bird feeders uh, close to areas where you know birds are nesting, though. So you have nest boxes up, or some maybe hedges where you know that some, some birds might be nesting in there. I wouldn't put feeders or bird tables near those in the summer because the constant comings and goings of all the other birds can really um, cause a lot of stress for the nesting birds there. But uh, what you'll find is you'll probably find that the birds eat a lot less food at the bird table during the summer because there's so much more natural food around. And then in the autumn, as the weather starts to get colder again, it sort of ramps up. But if people are looking for information on this, we have um, a whole section on our, our website, birdwatcharland.ie, where people can find out all the tips about feeding birds and also help to identify the, the garden birds there. We have a guide to all of the gardens, Ireland's garden birds there as well. And when you talk about the survey being uh, addictive, I discovered yesterday your nest cameras that you have set up <laughs> in uh, Do Hollow at the Barn Owl Nest. Now, that's addictive. Tell me about that. Oh. 
Oh, it, oh, it is. I, I, I lose hours myself yeah. about that. We're really excited about this. So we have at the moment my colleague John Lusby, who, who's our barn owl um, expert. He's he's done so much for the conservation of barn owls across Ireland. He has the, the this, this nest site, as you said, in Duhallow, uh, where he has installed two cameras. One is inside where the nest is itself. The other is at the entrance. So you can see the birds coming and going. And uh, 24 hours a day on the Bird Ocean YouTube channel, you can watch this live stream. And it's amazing to watch the female incubating her eggs there in the nest at the moment. Then when when they actually hatch out the little chicks get very active and they grow very rapidly and you'll see mum and dad going back and forth with mice and shrews and voles to feed them you'll see the sibling rivalry and squabbling going on in the nest and you see how fast they grow as well so it really is addictive viewing we really would encourage people to check it out and one of the reasons we're so keen to promote it too is that barn owls are a species that are really in trouble in Ireland they need a lot of support so in conjunction with that nest camera we've also launched a barn owl conservation appeal we're looking to raise funds to try help these birds and you'll find full details of that at our YouTube channel so just go to um, YouTube and search for Birdwatch Ireland. You'll see the live feed there and all the links. And it's yeah, free to watch it, but we do appreciate it. It is. It's just wonderful to watch. When can we expect them to hatch? Well, we'd expect them to hatch within the next few weeks. So normally they would hatch um, in sort of early to mid-May, I would say. It's not an exact science, so around that kind of time. And then that's when the, the real fun starts because they, they grow quite quite quickly. And owls are unusual in that the female, she starts to um, incubate the eggs from the moment she lays them. With most birds, um, such as blue tits and robins in our gardens, the incubation doesn't start until the female has laid the whole clutch of eggs. And then it starts. And what happens is only once they start to be incubated do the embryos start to develop. And that means for most birds that all of the birds will hatch at the same time. With owls, it's different. She staggers the, the incubation and the hatching. So you'll have one hatch and then maybe two days later, the second one, and then a few days later, the third one. So you have a range of different ages of owl in the nest. And, you know, the, it's interesting sometimes to watch the, how the, the little ones are trying to get in at the get food yeah. from the big ones. It's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, as I say, it really, really is uh, addictive. I was thrilled when I came across it because I remember watching uh, Nesting Bots. I'm sure they were with uh, little blue tits a few years mm. ago. And I just literally constantly had it on on, on a computer <laughs> the kitchen uh, it was just it was lo- lo- lovely to uh, watch and can you lo- I mean I'm assuming you can learn a lot from these cameras can you Nile? Oh we can yes because it tells us actually a lot in terms of from, from the conservation science point of view it tells us what kind of food that the parents are able to find for, for their chicks it tells us how well those chicks are growing and surviving and it means we can do it in a very um, non-invasive way because we, we can watch them on the cameras at remote distance the birds aren't even aware they're being watched so it's not causing any disturbance we don't have to have people nearby they'll be put off with but by because owls are quite quite sensitive we know that owls are also very sensitive to things like rat poison getting into their food chain uh. And so it helps us when we're watching them feed them. It helps us to, to see the health of those chicks, to see if any poisoning is happening. So from that, for, from that point of view, from conservation and from health, it's it's very important. But it's also it's also very entertaining too. Okay, so you've got you're coming to Ballymaloo uh, this weekend. Is it very much aimed yeah. at bird watchers? Well, it's aimed for aimed at people who would like to to like to, to, to know more about birds. You don't have to be an expert by any means. And um, so it's it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's lovely. We're actually kicking off um, this evening a lovely dinner. Then tomorrow morning we're having a lovely dawn chorus walk in the grounds of Ballymaloe House itself. I've done dawn chorus walks there before, and it's absolutely spectacular. Uh, the Allen family have done remarkable work at preserving the bird life and the nature around around the site, and so absolutely delighted to be working with them again this year on that. Then we're going to have some um, uh, trips uh, to, to to places like nearby Ballycotton, which is a wonderful nature reserve to see different types of birds this is the time of year lots of migrants are arriving we'll see some seabirds there 
hopefully we'll see um, some of the wading birds that will come into the to the beaches and to, and to the sort of lagoon area that they have there. Uh, and yeah, it's going, it's going to be lovely. So okay. And my apologies, I thought it was the weekend. It's actually the 19th and 20th. It's, uh, it's uh, t- today and tomorrow. My apologies today, tomorrow, on that. And then on Friday morning, we're having another dawn course at the Valley of the Cookery School. So it's going to be lovely. Okay, listen, enjoy, Niall. You're always a mine of information. I always love chatting to you. So thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, good, good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland. And as I say, well worth uh, going on to that camera that they have set up in the Barn Owls Nest in the Johallow uh, area. It's an old derelict uh, cottage. It's just fascinating to watch. I don't know if this is a question for Peter or not because it came in following my chat with Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland. But the listener says, Hi Patricia, I've got a lot of bullfinch birds around my house and they stripped all the blossoms off the tree. Is there any way to reduce the bullfish bullfinch numbers or keep them away from the trees? And I don't know whether uh, Peter would have an answer to that or not. Has anybody else got any suggestions because they stripped all the blossoms off the trees? But is that nature doing what nature does. Uh, I wonder if anyone has a suggestion for that listener. Uh, please uh, make contact with us. And Michael says, Patricia, your bird expert's name, Niall Hatch. Such an appropriate name for his job. I remember a number of years ago knowing a bank manager by the name of Lone. So funny and so uh, appropriate, says uh, Michael. And I always think that about Niall Hatch and even to hear him in his conversation talking about birds hatching. And uh, I always think of it. And I always remember my brother a number of years ago heard Niall Hatch for the first time on the radio and it was April Fool's Day and he thought it was an April Fool's Day joke he thought the person's name had been set up for an April Fool's Day joke and then that just got me thinking of names that suit the person's job and I did a quick Google search and I came up with a website that has names that people were born to do the job for example a neuroscientist by the name of Lord Lord brain, a firefighter by the name of Lieutenant Les McBurney, a lawyer in New York, and I jest you not, her name is Sue Yu. <laughs> There's a cashier working, I don't know where, where is this in America as well, and the name on the cashier's, you know, the name badge is Kaching. There is, from the BBC News, there is somebody who was speaking on behalf of the Water Research Centre and his name is Andrew Drinkwater. And then also from the BBC, a Samaritan's volunteer whose name is Alan Toogood. His surname is Toogood. And a doctor whose name is Dr. Doctor. His surname is Doctor, D-O-C-K-T-O-R, Doctor, uh, Doctor. Uh, There's an ophthalmologist working in the States and his name is Dr. Ashley C. Wright, which is a great name for a doctor. I'm not going to call out that gastrologist's uh, name, but a music teacher whose name is Miss C. Sharp. And there's loads of them on that particular uh, website. So yeah, Nile Hatch, certainly his name is very, very appropriate for the job that he does. Now, some of your comments coming into the programme. We were speaking about insurance and house insurance and Michael Kilcoyle was saying to warning us all to please be very careful and don't be underinsured. Some of your texts in somebody who knows the insurance uh, industry well says, Hi Patricia, on the home insurance that you were talking about with Michael Kilcoyle, it's actually called the average clause. If you're underinsured by 10%, 20% or 30% of the value of your house, i.e. the replacement value of your house that is called an average clause. It means any claim then you will make will be based on the ratio of the underinsured 
it's always been like this. I'm thinking insurance in premiums, I'm thinking insur- increases in premiums are in line to cover increased costs of, in- of construction and labour costs, etc. All utility providers are increasing charges at the moment, as we know. And this listener says, I worked with an insurance uh, company and I am now uh, retired. So, OK, it's always been the case, but I think the difference now is so many people because building costs have gone up so much so many people's houses are underinsured if god forbid it was burnt to the ground and you needed to replace it it is going to cost more than what you're actually paying for on your premium so therefore that average clause is coming in probably much more than it ever did before but there's somebody in the insurance industry uh, saying it is always there and then Patrick in Glamworth this is on people trying to because the one advice from Michael was make sure that you're not underinsured uh, and therefore you need to find out how much would it cost if your house was burned to the ground in the morning, God forbid, and it need to be rebuilt, how much would it actually cost? Patrick says the problem is most people don't know what square foot or square metres their house is. Therefore, they can't get an actual price on the rebuild of their house. When I renewed my home insurance, I know the size of my house and therefore I was able to tell my insurance company how much to increase it by. And I think that's a valid point, uh, Michael. I wouldn't have a clue what the, scare, what the square footage of my house is. And I think you're right. There's probably a lot of other people will agree with you on that. And then Kathleen said that she also got that letter that we mentioned when she got her house insurance premium to make sure that she wasn't underinsured and, you know, to find out how much much would the rebuild cost of her house be? But Kathleen said, I and thousands of people are paying home insurance, have been doing it for well over 50 years. Think of the amount of money these insurance companies have received from us. And many people as well would be very loyal to their insurance company and might be with the same insurance company since they first moved into their house, let's be honest. Anyway, let me go back to Kathleen's uh, text. So think of all the money that uh, we've given to the insurance company without ever making a claim. Also, if you live in Cork, you more than likely live in an area that is deemed subsidence area because Cork, of course, was built on a marsh. But no one informs you of this when you purchase your house. You soon realise that lots of insurance companies won't actually take you on. It's all just another catch that insurance companies use to charge the customer more, says uh, Kathleen in uh, Cork, who's very much agreeing with what Michael Kilcoyne was saying, that they're trying to... um, House, house insurance companies are trying to have it every which way at the moment and it does seem a little bit uh, unfair. Somebody has suggested to the listener who has a lot of bull finches in their garden uh, to get a few cats. <laughs> I had once upon a time, once upon a time I had cats and I used to absolutely hate if they killed any of the little birds uh, in the garden. I really, it's the one thing that used to always upset me about my beloved uh, cats, but that's I suppose what cats uh, do. OK, we were talking about uh, teachers and nurses earlier on when I was talking about nurses and the Irish Nurses and Medical Midwives, I keep saying medical, midwives organisation, the INMO, complaining about what's going on in our two main Cork hospitals, the Mercy and in CUH and the overcrowding conditions and the stress and the pressure that's been put on nurses. And then I spoke about teachers and how we're losing many of our young uh, teachers. We're using, losing a lot of our very young, educated work- workforce. They're going abroad and I was talking about Australia they have recruitment drive on at the moment here in Ireland trying to get nurses to trying to get teachers to move to Australia to uh, teach. A listener says, Patricia, 
The nurses and the teachers are like broken records. They're always complaining about their wages, about their hours, about their conditions. Nobody forced them to go into that profession. We all filled out the same CAO form. Go into any restaurant or any hotel, anywhere in Cork or indeed anywhere around the country and you will find chefs working over 60 hours a week and they do that for 49 weeks of the year. They don't get bank holidays off. Many of them don't are not involved with unions and you'll never hear chefs complaining. People with government jobs in this country think they're above everyone. Hmm, there's somebody, I don't know if that person is a chef or is perhaps married to a chef and I will be the first to say chef, chefing is a tough tough job and you're right they work anti-social hours as well but I always think the conditions they have to work in they're constantly working in uh, hot, ki- hot kitchens and it's just it, pardon the pun but it can be a pressure cooker at times working in those conditions so yes I, I applaud chefs I think they work very hard and very long uh, hours then someone else says Patricia is it is it about time that a lot of the education system went online if we're talking about that we have a school staffing crisis and I gave you that stat of on average 1,200 classes per day in primary and special schools did not have a teacher between the months of September and December of last year. That's a shocking number of classes not to have a qualified teacher. So this listener has a suggestion. Would we not be better to start moving more of our education system online? The traffic congestion caused by school traffic is shocking. That would end. There are apartments taken up by students that could be given to families and to migrant workers. Remember, the majority of Ukrainian students are studying online here. They are and they're studying online in the morning and then they go into the Irish schools as well. They're putting in really, really long uh, days. Anyway, I mean, a lot of the courses are done through something called WebPEX. I don't quite know what that is, but it's done online. The technology is so good now, it actually feels like you're in a classroom. So it does reduce isolation, etc. Because, and we did move education online, let's be honest, during the start of the pandemic. Now, people did say it wasn't good for the social skills, but could some of the classes... Uh, some of the education be moved online. Our list, that's one of our listeners feels that's exactly what needs to be done. And then on the young teachers, particularly the young teachers that have been targeted by the Australian recruitment campaign, uh, Gronia reckoned she can understand why many young teachers are going abroad and it's to do with the pay discrepancy between the younger teacher and the older teacher. They, they took away There was a cut in wages in 2012. But do you realise it was the older teachers, many of them now retired, who allowed the younger workers on lower wages. So now the younger teachers are picking up the can. Okay, what Grania is talking about, it was in 2011. It was when it was introduced that there was a two-tiered system. There was a two-tiered pay rate, uh, which very much discriminated against newly qualified uh, teachers. And that two-tier system remains in place. I think it got voted in in 2010 and then it came into being in uh, 2011. And that is, in fairness, the, the union since probably since around 2016 have been trying to get that the newly qualified teacher to put onto the same pay scale as the older teachers. I've always felt it was unfair because you'll have two teachers, you know, working in neighbouring classrooms doing the exact same job meeting up in the school canteen to have their lunch and one is getting paid more than the other I always felt it was very unfair and and at the time the unions agreed I mean the unions didn't stand up and say no we shouldn't be allowing 
younger qualified teachers to be paid less. The, you know, all of the unions agreed to that at the time. Now, I know since the INTO, the TUI and the ASTI have been fighting to have that uh, reversed, but they still haven't managed to get it uh, reversed. And because of that, you have these younger teachers who go in on a lower pay scale to the teachers who were there longer, the teachers who started work after before 2010. It always, to me, seemed very unfair. So I certainly can understand why those younger teachers then, when you get the likes of the Australian recruitment team coming over, you can understand why they decide to take those jobs and go elsewhere where they're going to get higher pay. 0818103103. A reminder that we're looking for gardening questions, please. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Cloyne Literary and Historical Society are hosting Martin Millerick at Hearty's Restaurant in Cloyne. And it's happening tonight at 8 o'clock. The lecture is Remembering East Cork. And it will be of particular interest to those from Kilcreden and Cloyne. All are welcome and a small admission fee for non-members will apply. The Mallow Rugby Girl club's Girls Give It A Try programme is now open for registration. It's an eight-week programme and it is for girls aged 6 to 14 and it's to introduce girls to non-contact tag rugby. The cost is just €10 for the eight-week programme and sessions last one hour. The first session is this Saturday at 11 in Mallow Rugby Club on St. Joseph's Road. But girls are welcome to join the programme at any time over the next eight weeks. If you'd like more information, you can contact Neil at 087 655 1126. Social dancing in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic will happen next Friday night. Music is by Michelle Murphy and dancing is from 9pm to 12 midnight. Admission is €10 and that will include teas. And the McCroom Senior Citizens and Active Retirement Group are organising a Reconnect and Meet Again gala concert. It's on in St Coleman's Church in McCroom this Friday night with a half seven start. Now it will feature the City of Cork Male Voice Choir, Sean O'Shea, Ballinagree Folk Group, among others. Tickets are ten euro, and they're available from McSweeney's shop in McCroom on 026 41070. Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. When I was talking about names that are appropriate to the job, and this came up because of Nile Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, uh, Cullum and Butterwind said the heart specialist in Mallow Hospital is called Dr. Hart, and her father was also a heart specialist in CUH, and he was called Dr. Hart. Uh, as well. That's a very, very much appropriate to a cardiac uh, specialist. And on the two-tier teachers pay, John and Cove says it was the older teachers that sold out the younger teachers in the Haddington Road Agreement back in 2010. If the older teachers had not agreed to their pay, to their standard the older teachers retiring would have lost some of their pension. John understands why they sold out, but they did sell out the younger uh, colleagues. Uh, John feels the unions need to be doing more to bring it back on par. Yeah, it seems very unfair to the younger teachers for sure. 0818 Now, Joan is in for Moy and wants to raise an issue uh, with us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Joan. Good afternoon, Tricia. Now, this is to do with podiatrists and yeah. podiatrists work on your feet. 
Exactly. Okay, what's the problem? I'll tell you, I've been going to a podiatrist through the HSC for about 10 or 12 years. And initially it was four times a year. So with the last two or three years, they have pushed it out maybe every four months instead of every three months. So last December, I had a last appointment there. And the girl said to me that now she said, looking at your chart, you will only qualify twice a year. So it was nothing to do with her. And I said, really? But when I came home, I just thought about it. And I said, I have diabetes, I have lymphedema, I have chronic arthritis, and I have had polymyalgia twice in the last five years. And if that's not a case to look after feet, what is? So, um, sorry. Now, when she said you're only going to you're only, we're only going to be seeing you twice a year, that was that was to do with cutbacks. It wasn't to do with you only need to come in twice a year. No, Joan. it wasn't. It was just because uh, you see, I hadn't made her aware that I had all the other problems. She was, as far as she was concerned, I just had diabetes. And during the uh, session, she had quizzed me a bit on how I was feeling and all the usual things, which Mm. wasn't normal. But I answered her accordingly. But it was when I came home, I thought, gosh, you have three more things, really. And I rang Mallow the following day. And they said, oh, we never knew that. Grand, you'll be coming three monthly. We're very sorry. That was a slip up. So that was the first week in December. So last week I decided, now I've given them four months, a little over, so it's time to ring. I rang four times within the last week. And yesterday, a very nice girl, now the staff are lovely, rang me back and she said, I haven't great news for you. I can't give you an appointment now at the moment. And I said, well, I said, I was told I was being changed, but that was clarified, and I'm three monthly again. What is the problem? The problem is, she said, you could be 10 months waiting. We're only doing people that have uh, toes amputated, uh, very bad ulcers, or a third thing, which I was so shocked I couldn't retain. And she said... We have only one podiatrist for Kenturk, Mallow, for Moy, and she did name a fort. So the no- generally the, the North Cork area? A North Cork. Yeah, one podiatrist. One podiatrist. And but when you were going regularly for your appointments, would you have seen a number of different podiatrists? No, I would have had the same one, okay. but there would have been three in the North Cork area. There would have been a lovely man called Michael who would be in charge and there would be two others. But for my would be assigned to one. So for a few years, you'd have one and then that might change. Is this a recruitment issue, did they say? It's, they've tried and tried, yeah. they said. We're back, we're back again to this recruitment. We're thing. back again to the HSC not giving the proper rates and the proper everything and making it attractive. Because I said to her then, I didn't care at this stage because I'm sure I won't get it again, but it won't be for one to try. But she said you'd be as well now to go privately. Now, it's not 
just a few euros I'll pay privately. It's the principal office. Yeah. I am entitled to it. I don't have a medical card, just a GP card. I don't have a home help. I pay somebody privately. I pay for our medications. We have a doctor, okay, this GP over 70. But it was the only thing that I was getting. The only service. And I have half a pension, courtesy of Fine Gael and Labour. Oh, in, you, yeah. You, in you 2012. Were, yeah, you were one of the ones that got caught yeah, with, with, with that. which never got Started. So, so, but they're basically saying, if God forbid, Joan, your toes ended up being amputated, then come on back, we'll look after you. Yeah. That's shocking. Yeah, well, that is now, and I do believe that girl, because I'm sure I was on to her before. So you'd need ulcers or a toe gone or but something you, else. But you don't want to let your feet get That's to that the condition. Point. I am just, this health system is, we were far better when we had four health boards. Back in the old days. Back in the old days. Because, as you've been on about, I wasn't tuned in all morning. The schools and the teachers, it's an absolute disaster. The hospitals are just a write-off. Um, the housing crisis is beyond a joke. There are families now leaving for my here that were settled for six years and they've got to move 20, 30 miles away because the landlords are selling the houses yeah. over their heads, yeah. literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, we're going and to that see. is so sad and yeah. nobody seems to care. Yeah. That is the worst of our uh, lovely yeah. green Ireland. And, and, then, and then we hear of, the, you know, the government uh, yesterday... Uh, talk a wash with money. A wash with money. Yeah. The Tonight Show last night, Regina Doherty and all those, they couldn't spend it. Yeah, I mean, it just you know, I mean, they're they're already talking about a giveaway budget, even though some are saying that's because the coalition is preparing for an election either the second half of next year or early in twenty twenty five. So we'll get all this this great big giveaway budget in order to encourage I people to vote. Voted for years, Have and I not? don't think I will vote ever again. Personally. But it's just it's frustrating when you see the amount of money that's coming into the exchequer. Yeah. And, and and listen, I absolutely accept that, you know, the corporation tax, a lot of it, you know, c- can be windfall and whatever. But they could be doing things with that money they now. They could. Yeah. And they could be encouraging. I don't blame any teachers for going to Australia. Yeah, yeah. Because they can't get mortgages for houses at the cost of them on those that came in with their salaries because they've been cut a fifth. Yeah. It's having um, a backlash on all their lives, really. It is, it is. And we're, and and we're using, to care. we're losing those wonderful, young, educated workforce. I mean, we've always had a percentage of people that go away for a couple of years uh, but, and then they come back and I've no issue with that. But these are young people who feel they have no choice but to go away. Yeah, and like young people do give a lot to different things. They've got energy. If you're married with Everybody is entitled to get married and get leave and do what they want. But you, if you're married with two or three young children, no matter how good a teacher you are, your mind is on a sick child. You're wondering if you don't stay at home and if a carer is minding it. You can't function 100% in school, naturally. Like young teachers will have no commitments for so many years and their whole focus will be on their students. Mm. I mean, people do give out about teachers and 
they have fantastic holidays, don't get me wrong. But if I had a choice in the morning, if I could go back and be a teacher or an SNA, I would opt for an SNA. There are wonderful SNAs there. They do everything to help teachers and they're super with children. They are, they're brilliant. But they're brilliant. once they come out of the school, they don't have to prepare classes. Yeah, they're finished they for the day. They don't have to think. They give 100% when they're there. But teachers have to think ahead. They have to plan ahead. I have a son who's in at half seven and he loves being there when teachers aren't in and he's not out till half three. And if he comes home a weekend, he's two to three hours on Saturday and an hour or two on Sunday doing stuff. Yeah, it isn't, and it isn't just the And he has the name teach. now of when they, you know, bulk all the teachers of running in at the last minute and running out at half two. He's giving. Now, he isn't married and he does love teaching, but he gives 200%. School are lucky to have him. School are lucky to have him. Okay, go, uh, Joan, are you going to go private with the podiatrist? To be honest, I'm going, oh yeah, she did say then, go and get a referral again and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, but in the meantime, you don't want your feet to get into no, bad condition. No, I probably yeah. will go private, yeah. but I am so cross at the moment. I am going to, you can't ring any more a doctor because you want it won't be a satisfactory set up, so I'll make an appointment and I'll see, uh, could she send a referral? Okay. But in the meantime, I will check out a podiatrist. OK, and actually, um, I got a letter. I must look, I have it on file. Uh, it came in before I went away on holiday. Somebody was suggesting somebody who's doing a home podiatrist service in the Mallow. I don't know if she just works in the Mallow area or not, but it might be worth having a chat with her as well. All right, listen, Joan, let us know how you get on. Yeah, I will, because it just bugs me to think that it's their fault they haven't got them. They say they have tried, but they haven't tried many years ago to make sure this would not happen. Yeah. They wait till it's too late, like everything in Ireland lately. Okay, somebody so else. So I am disillusioned, as you can see all around. I know. John has been on to say, listening with interest to you, he's got a, a similar situation, uh, finding it very frustrating. It's his elderly mother. She's been waiting since 2021. Uh, so coming up to two years for an appointment with a podiatrist. He keeps being told it's to do with the lack of podiatrists yeah. and the lack of, lack of follow-on care. Uh, he says the staff at one point said they don't want to start um, working with her because there won't be follow-on care. And yeah. Like you, uh, John says, it was suggested to him that they might be better off going They're trying private. to push people away yeah, so and John they says don't that's, have to yeah, advertise. John says that's what more, more likely they're going to do. And if he's got an elderly mum whose feet yeah. need looking after, I can see why you do it. All right, listen, I've got to leave Thanks it there, Joan. Thanks for okay, that. Look after Trisha. yourself. Thanks for joining us. 0818 103 103. Let's turn our attention to gardening and Peter Dowdle. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. C103 Gardening with the Mallow Home and Garden Festival, May 26th to 28th at Cork Racecourse Mallow. It's too big to miss. And Peter Dowd of the IrishGarden.com joining us on a WhatsApp. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon on a lovely sunny Wednesday at long last. And, and the sun is shining here as well. And I was making the point uh, yesterday was such a gorgeous uh, spring day and there was warmth in the sun uh, even. And to hear the lawnmowers and the smell of cut grass, there's, there's something wonderful about it. 
yeah, just to feel uh, it's probably one of the first days that you I remember standing outside and it's not just bright, but you could, as you say, actually feel a bit of heat on my back. It was lovely. Yeah, it's great. OK, straight into questions. Uh, Peter, please. What is a good fertilizer for a lawn? Uh, it's full of dandelions and moss. Thinking you. If you want, first of all, the dandelions, are, I know they're asking for a fertilizer, not a weed killer, which is good. But first of all, the dandelions are important, very important for the bees. So so let them flower away. But the best, I also kind of, if you want to get rid of the moss, what you need to do is scarify it first, right? So, so go over it with a scarifier, which uh, is like a mechanical rake, Trish, which, which removes the moss and the thatch from the kind of soil surface at the, the base of the lawn. Uh, and then fertilize it with, uh, it, the, what I like to use is the lawn gold. It's the Irish one, the Galway one, which which, um, as I've said before in your program, using their own marketing speak, like the, the best way to prevent moss and weeds on a lawn is healthy grass. So if you can make, ensure good, healthy grass, scarifying in the first instance, then feeding it with the lawn gold, moss and weeds will have less of a chance to colonize, okay? So if if you may not want to, but the reason I'm hesitating is because an awful lot of people, and nearly myself included, are quite happy to leave the moss on the lawn. I don't mind it. But if you want to get rid of the moss, scarify it first, then fertilize it with something like the lawn gold. And the reason I recommend that one is because it, 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 it works to keep the soil quite alkaline, uh, which is ideal conditions for ideal soil pH for, for grass growth, but not for moss growth. Uh, and instead of the moss going black or brown, it just kind of dissolves to dust. So you're not left with, with the job of having to rake out any black moss. So that'll be the, the, the best approach, I think. OK. Hi, Liz. Hi, Peter. I have an arch in my garden. I've had it for years. I have two climbers growing on it, one on either side. But on one side, the climber has died. It's so thick, all the birds are nesting in it. What a home for the birds. When is the right time to remove it? Obviously, post the, the nesting uh, season. But when is the right time to get rid of the part that has died and gone rotten? So horticulturally, once it's dead, there's no right time. You can do it whenever you want, really, because it's dead. So so uh, horticulturally, the it's not an issue. And so ecologically, it's an issue, obviously, because the birds are nesting in it. So as you just said, when the birds are finished nesting, so September, October, uh, that, that's probably when I'd remove it. OK, a listener says, Peter, how does the Berberus darwinia propagate? Can I take cuttings or is it the berries which come on it later on? I'm thinking of it as a fast growing species from places I've noticed it rotting spontaneously. And I'm thinking of it as a hedge. I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing she meant rooting spontaneously instead of rotting spontaneously. Rooting, sorry, rooting spontaneously. <laughs> yeah, I imagine yeah. so. Um, but so, bo- both is the answer to the question. It'll grow from the seeds, which are within the berries, uh, but it'll also grow from cutting. Now, being honest, I've never grown it from seed, uh, but I mean, it, it will because, as as she says in, in the in the in the text, that uh, you you do see it rooting and germinating spontaneously. You will see seedlings around an established plant. So, uh, I've never tried the seed but it's certainly worth to try just let the fruit dry out and desiccate naturally and now a lot of these seeds the, the berries you see that this is how nature works so so intrinsically together the birds will feed on the berries and very often the seed within needs to go through the bird's digestive system to to break up the seed coat so uh, and it comes out in a bird dropping so but you could try just drying the berries and taking out the seed and seeing if that works as i say i've never done it you take the cuttings you could take them as softwood cuttings during the summer, but you can also take them as heel cuttings or mallet cuttings rather uh, in January, which is without going into detail on, it, on, on the program. If you just Google how to take cuttings from Berberus, uh, that's probably going to be your quickest way to get new plants. 
Okay, hi, uh, Patricia. Question for Peter. I have both well-established and new rhubarb. I'm watering it and I'm feeding it with a seaweed compost. The new leaves on the established rhubarb are gone yellow and the stalks are rubbery. Can Peter give me some advice, please? The, well, the only on the established one, the only advice I would give there is possibly to, to mulch it. So you're feeding it with a good seaweed product, which is grand, um, but mulch it with more organic matter. It, it, it hasn't dried out because we've had an immense amount of rain, but mulching it with a good amount of organic materials, you know, it could be actual seaweed as opposed to the seaweed feed or, or farmyard manure, something like that, well-rotten manure, even your own homemade compost, that you can improve that soil structure around the plant and give it more humus and give it more nutrients. And that really is probably what you need to to thicken it up. It's possible that you overfed it with the, the seaweed, but I'd be more inclined to, um, because that can sometimes have the, the same symptom, if you like, as being hungry. Um, but I would look more at building up the, the the nutrients through using organic material like the ones I just mentioned there. Okay, Paul in McCroom says he got a guy in to cut his hedges back in March. Um, the guy cutting it used a tractor. Problem is parts of the garden got damaged as a result of the tractor driving over the lawn. Uh, Paul wants to know how can he fix it? And there's no quick fix for Paul, unfortunately. Um, without seeing the damage, to seeing how how much of it is damaged, you just have to. You, you might ha- might get away with just a couple of wheelbarrows of of soil, uh, or soil and sand mix in the tire tracks. Just put them down so that or put this that mix of 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 graded soil down on the tire tracks rake it and stand in it so that it ends up level with the surrounding grass and just reseed it. That, that, that is your quick fix, actually, now that I just said there isn't one, but that is your quickest fix. And hopefully if the damage isn't too widespread, that will work. If the damage is widespread and if, you know, for example, if the truck was turning circles and digging up the whole lawn, then I'm afraid you, you probably just have to start again and, and, and it, that's a bigger job. But look, uh. hopefully it's just a question of a few tyre tracks, uh, a sand and soil mix 50-50, get it level with the surrounding area and, and, and fresh seed. OK, and the listener says, what could be done with neighbours' Japanese knotweed going out of control? The neighbour, by the way, is not easy to approach. Oh. I thought the I thought that question was ending with what can be done with neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a tough um, one, isn't it? It is a very tough one. And, and you know, it's a sensitive one. Now, what, all I can tell you is the the the... the textbook answer if you like or the legal answer and that is if if you have Japanese knotweed on your property and if you're aware of it then if it spreads into a neighbouring property you're liable for it okay Mm. so it is an interesting one and if the neighbour is difficult to approach that's going to make it even more interesting I don't have a magic solution for you Um, I would there there is two I think it's only two maybe I'm wrong on this uh, licensed companies in the country to deal with Japanese knotweed and I think if it's a case of your neighbour is difficult to approach you might be best getting advice from one of them as opposed yeah. to me yeah. generally Good advising point. you over the, 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 the one of them is based in Kerry and they're called to the best of my knowledge it's a Japanese knotweed company or Japanese knotweed Ireland it, 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 but I, I would contact one of them um, and 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 get actual but do, correct but do, advice. But don't ignore if it is getting out of control no, you do not want it on your property, no matter who's liable for it. You don't want it on your property because it will just take over. Yeah. OK, we leave it there. Uh, busy week. 
busy week, busy season at that time of the year. It's, it's kind of everything is growing in front of your eyes. I was just talking to, to somebody earlier or yesterday. In fact, I have a beautiful uh, crab apple, which I wait for to flower every year because I cleared around it. And two weeks ago, it was hardly even in leaf. And and today the petals of the flowers are nearly gone. But right. it's you know it's that time of the year. It's, it's, it's so quick and and seasonal and transient. But enjoy the garden while we can. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Peter, we'll talk to you again next uh, Wednesday. Thanks for that. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks Porter. for joining Bye-bye. us. That is uh, Peter Dowd of the Irishgardener Let me update on some of your texts that have come into the program. Anne Marie was listening to uh, Joan, who came on to talk about. Uh, the issue she has with a podiatrist but it led on to she's got um, children who are teachers and she was talking about her son and how dedicated her son is to teaching and the amount of hours that he puts in. Anne-Marie says Joan is 100% correct about teachers and particularly how she outlined their workload. I've got family members who are teaching and they spend hours undertaking preparation every evening, not to mention correcting copies. They don't turn up into a classroom. For example, if they want to teach fractions to seven-year-olds, they can't turn up without a detailed lesson plan and associated resources, for sure. Hours in the classroom are not their full working day. Equally, during the holidays, they have to upskill with courses known as CPB. CPD. Uh, We have super teachers in this country. That is why they're in so demand worldwide and hence the reason why the Australians are over here trying to encourage so many of our young teachers to go over there to teach. Kudos to to their dedication and to our superb teacher training colleges, says Anne Maria. And if we could just sort out the issue with the the pay disparity between the younger teachers and the older teachers. I think we will probably have a a more happier bunch of teachers as well. And then Mags is picking up on the comment from the listener whose husband is a chef who was complaining about the fact that it always seems to be teachers and nurses that are giving out and the listener was talking about how hard a chef works and the hours that they put in uh, every week etc. And you never hear them complaining. Mags says, I listened to that comment from the ladies whose husband is a chef and she there criticising public servants. I think this lady has a big chip on her shoulder. My God, public servants work extremely hard. They bailed out the pension system by making an extra contribution, the pension related deduction, which is still being deducted from their salaries today. As for teachers, their days don't end when they walk out the school gate. They spend hours at home correcting and preparing papers. My dear lady, your husband, just like most people, chose his own career. Get a life, lady, and get rid of that lump that is on your shoulder, says uh, Mags. Throwing back at the point that the initial caller made that people who decide to go into nursing or teaching pick their own uh, profession. Okay, that's where I'm going to have to uh, wrap it up for today. Thanks to uh, John Paul for uh, producing. Now, Nick Richards is off this week and we hope he's having a lovely week off. It's good to see the sun uh, shining for him, which means Mark Malone is in for the afternoon and he will keep you company until Martina at four. We'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon to you. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.